Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast with your host and CEO of Align Ventures, Arnold Olszewski. Join us as we speak with real estate pros about their experiences and learn the fundamentals of passive real estate investing. Together, we will unlock the secrets of achieving financial freedom by discussing proven strategies and building passive income through investing in real estate. Here's your host, Arnold Olszewski. Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Arnold Olshansky, and today we have Gino Barbaro. He's an investor, a business owner, author, and entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, he's had a real estate portfolio of over 2,000 multifamily units and over $250 million in assets under management. Gino and his partner, Jake, are teaching others how to do the same through the Jake and Gino community. To date, their students have closed over 60,000 units and $4 billion in deal volume. And above all else, he is a husband and father to six children and resides in St. Augustine, Florida with his wife, Julia. Gino, welcome to the show. How are you today? Arnold, let's have a little fun today. Real estate should be fun. It's painful at times, but we're going to make it a little enjoyable today. All right? I need a little fun in my life, Gino. <laughs> I like the way that sounds. <laughs> to start off the fun, I have a fun question for you. And it's really about your journey. I mean, you've had great success in the real estate business, you know, from acquiring your first 25 unit building back in 2013 to now having over 2000 units under management. What advice can you give people that are just starting out on their investing journey? Oh, Arnold, we could spend the whole podcast on that one question. And, and I'll relate it to something that I started about a couple of years ago. I'm going to talk as if I'm a beginner. Let's take real estate out of the equation. I started singing opera about two years ago. And ironically enough, my opera singer, big Russian dude, 60-year-old guy, I walk into the studio and George says to me, sing me something. I'm Italian. He assumes that all Italians are natural-born singers. And I was, by the way, I was roped in by my kids. My kids had already been singing. They were unbelievable. I didn't want to do it. I'm like, I'm not going to sing. So I, I want to sing, you know, Guns N' Roses. I don't know what to sing to the guy. He pulls out a sheet of paper and he makes me start singing Santa Lucia. I had never sung before in my entire life. I mean, as far as trying to perform. And it was the most challenging thing I think I had done in years. I was paralyzed with fear. I didn't know what to do. But I had this consummate professional who's six years old there. Fast forward two years later. I was going every week. I was learning the technique. I was taking one step forward, two steps back. I was singing on Sundays at church. We do a choir every Tuesday. I'm putting in the hours. I'm trying to be as competitive as I can with my kids. I want to kick my kids' ass. Then I listen to this. But I want to be better than them. They are amazing. But why was I doing all this? Well, it was fun, number one. But number two, I wanted to go back and I wanted to really suck at something. I wanted to feel the pain of what it's like starting over as a beginner and struggling every week and not being good and listening to yourself. And I'll tell you, singing is one of the most challenging things you could possibly do. It is very physical. When you hear your voice, there's a lot of I don't say self-loathing, but you just feel really uncomfortable. You get a computer and you're underwriting a deal. You can do it in your underwear and nobody's looking at you. You can learn real estate from your house. But when you're singing, there are other people there. You need to at one time perform for people. And you're learning something that's really hard. You're, I mean, I, I was fortunate because I could read music. I was fortunate that I could speak Italian. So I, 
I had a couple of advantages. It's like you, you know, when you start off Arnold, you have, you might have capital when you start out in real estate. So that gives you one advantage, but don't say that that person has an advantage because he can speak Italian and he can read music. So what? He might have an advantage in the beginning, but those that are persistent and continue to put in the work and continue to show up every week and are coachable and leave the ego at the door, and that's a very hard thing to do, and put in the work, those are the ones who will ultimately succeed in any endeavor that they do. And, you know, to this day, I continue to sing. I love singing. We have an event in October, more uh, Multifamily Mastery 6 Live. There's going to be over a thousand people there. I'm going to be on stage. I'm going to be singing a couple songs, so I have to prep for that. It's a lot of fun. I do it with my family. So you need to have, as we were talking before, Arnold, you need to have the reason why. Why are you doing it? For me, real estate was really the vehicle that got me out of the restaurant. I had a small business. I needed something. I was really, really in pain, as you can say. If you're in that land of, ah, it's not bad, you're either going to be in a lot of pain or you're going to love your life. If you're in that, ah, not so bad. And I think for singing, I was I, I wasn't in a lot of pain. I just wanted to learn it. I wanted to try something new. I was getting bored, and I actually wanted to, to perform for my students. So that was the motivation there to say, "Hey!" And then obviously, when my my teacher said, "Hey, you're a natural. You've got a natural voice. You've got a natural tint to your voice. You're a dramatic tenor. You have the ability, the confidence that your teacher is imposing upon yourself, and you doing the work during the week and showing up." I mean, that's what I think everyone who's starting out needs to understand. Figure out your why, but you need to find people who are doing it. Because if you're on an island, I could watch YouTube videos about singing. I could sit there, but am I going to practice every week? Am I going to show up every week? Am I going to get feedback on the minute as I'm singing? George is telling me, hey, you're not hitting the note properly. You're not using enough air. You're not bracing. You're not holding the note enough that's off pitch. Whatever the criticism may be, he's giving it to me in real time. And that is what's been able for me to accelerate my performance and my ability to sing a lot. I know that was a long answer, but I think I wanted to bring it back to when I was a beginner in something very recently in my life. And I realized that if I didn't get the help and I didn't get the clarity of why I was doing it, it doesn't matter if I become successful. You're not going to continue that success. That's awesome. I mean, the, the takeaways that I got, the three big ones is, Number one, first and foremost, is you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Yes. If you don't have a deep burning desire, it doesn't matter what you know, it's going to be hard to execute and implement it. The other one, and I, I love this, right? Because I'm trying to play golf right now and boy, boy, do I suck, <laughs> right? But that process of not being good at something, the takeaway that I got from hearing you is embrace not being good at something. Because once you reach a certain level of mastery, it's not as fun as when you're making such leaps and bounds and you're just starting out. And lastly, it's surround yourself with people that already got there because, you know, success leaves footprints. So it seems that if we take all of that, would you say those are three of the big points that would summarize it well? I was, you summarized it excellently. The only thing that I would add is I would tell the listeners to go out and read a book by Dr. Benjamin Hardy. It's called The Gap and the Gain. Right now, Arnold is in the gap as his golf game. He sucks. He, he wants to master it. <laughs> but if he was in the game, he would say, hey, six months ago, I didn't know what a golf club looked like. I didn't know how to hit a golf ball. I could only hit it 50 yards. Now I'm hitting it 200 yards. That's living the game. Being saying to yourself, wow, I've progressed from where I've come. The light's at the end of the tunnel. It's 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 far away, but I'm not worried about that. I'm living in today, and I'm a, I'm doing really well at it today. Most of us say, you know what? I'm not hitting 300 yards. I'm you know 30 shots above par. They're worried about where they can go. That's living in the gap. But living in the gain is saying, you know what? I've progressed so much. I've gotten so much better. I may not be anywhere near where I need to be, but I've gotten a lot better. And if we can live in the gain more, 
and more in our lives, it'll just motivate us to go out there and grab the golf clubs or grab the mic and start singing and continue to do that. So that's a really, really important, I think, caveat that we need to include in our lives. Absolutely. And, you know, I I tell this to everybody that I mentor, don't just sit down in the morning and ask yourself what you could do better, but also recognize what you did well, you know, so you could reflect on that and, and see the progress you've made. I also wanted to touch on a little bit. You discussed the three pillars of real estate investing. And if I got it correctly, those three pillars are buying right, managing right, and financing right. And I know you also discuss how people need to create their criteria under those three main buckets so they can have laser beam focus to their end destination. Can you give some examples on how passive investors, people that don't want to actively manage a property, but how they can use those three pillars to make better investing decisions? We had a gentleman named Walker Dybel on our podcast last week. He wrote the book, Buy Them Build. I think that's the book he wrote. Walker, amazing. He's called an acquisition entrepreneur look him up. And as we're on the podcast, he's acquiring businesses. And this framework hit me. It's buy right, finance right, and manage right. If you're buying a business, which real estate ultimately is, if you're investing in a business, you have to execute on all three of those. We have it in the shape of a wheelbarrow. The back two legs is the buy right leg and the finance right leg. And the wheel is the one that's in constant motion, whether you're property managing yourself or you have third-party property management. Ultimately, you want to fill that wheelbarrow up with a bunch of assets. If one of those legs is wobbly, guess what? The wheelbarrow tips over. Now, for a passive investor, when you buy the asset, it's fixed. When you finance the asset, it's fixed. Those two are sort of taken care of. All that's left is the manage right. Now, what I tell our students, I think whether you're actively or passively investing in deals, the buy right is critical because you need to understand what type of assets you're buying. And I can expand upon that further. You need to understand your goals. Arnold, if you've got $17 million in the bank, you're not going to be buying a six unit, you know, complex, you know, in the middle of nowhere. You have different goals, different aspirations. If you're a 24 year old looking to really scale up in the business and don't have capital, your buyer criteria is going to be a little bit different. So I think everyone out there has to understand what their criteria is for buying assets. I would say selecting a market is very important as a passive investor. You may live in California. You may say to yourself, I don't like California. Well, select a market that works for you. I would say go into a market. I like the Southeast. I also like the Midwest markets. I like the Kansas City markets. I like if you're in Wichita, Kansas, I like those markets. But I also like the Tennessee markets. I like markets in Texas. There's certain markets in Florida that you can do really well in. Choose the market. Choose the, the market that you're going to be investing in. I think the second thing is when you're buying an asset, we, we can go take a deep dive on this. But as a passive investor, you are underwriting and looking at a deal as if you're investing it in yourself. You're going to buy this deal and run it yourself. That's very, very critical. And when you're looking at the buyer criteria, who is on that team? Who is the sponsor on that team? Number one. Number two, who does that sponsor have on his or her team? Who is their property management company? Who is their syndication attorney? Who is their CPA? And and the list goes down the line. Their cost segregation, their insurance agent. Make sure you get a list of their entire team members. And if they don't give it to you, then you walk because you want to make sure you want to vet every single one of them. Also, you want to understand if the sponsor's done a deal, have they gone full cycle on deals, what their business strategy is. If Arnold, you want to invest in a deal and you want your money back in 24 months, but this sponsor says, you know, Arnold, I'm sorry, five to seven year minimum, 
Does that deal work for Arnold? Probably not. And that's okay. We call it finding impact together. You need to find impact together and work together with your goals from the sponsor side and from the investor side. And that's all on you sponsors as well. Make sure that you're impacting the investors. And if your investments don't align, your, your goals don't align, then please separate and don't invest in that deal. But a little bit more for the past investor when they're doing their buy right criteria. In this part of the market, we're buying assets that are a little bit newer. I mean, like the older assets are okay. It's just price points have gotten so high on these older assets that it almost makes sense to buy these newer assets with less capital expenditures. I would also say to people looking at a market, understand the different neighborhoods where there's less crime, where there's there's less risk in the neighborhood. I would say go and take a look at median income of an area and figure out what median income works for you. I think you also have to ultimately, you know, what kind of asset are you buying? Are you buying a newer asset, A or B? Are you buying C, affordable housing, workforce housing? You need to be clear on all of these objectives before you say, hey, I'm going to look at this deal. But I think ultimately, one of the most important things is, hey, picking that sponsor, making sure they know what they're doing and making sure that you align from a values-based perspective and from a cultures-based perspective because the sponsor is going to take your money and you may not get that money back in you know three, four, or five years being comfortable with their business plan and, and making sure that it aligns with what you're trying to accomplish. You know, in your opinion, when somebody is looking at a sponsor, what are maybe the top two questions they should ask themselves? I know there's a lot, but if you were to give maybe just the top two that you feel are just way up there are most important to determining whether that person is a fit for them to do business with. That is a tough question because there's there's hundreds. I would actually say when you meet a person, I would go out and if I'm going to invest with you, Arnold, I'm getting on a plane and I'm flying up to wherever, Staten Island, Brooklyn. I'm going to shake your hand. If I'm going to give you $100,000, I want to meet you in person. I want to get to know you and I want to see a couple of your projects. I also want a couple of references from the people you've worked with and from your team members. I'm going to also go online and I'm going to scrub you. I'm going to look at your LinkedIn accounts, your Facebook accounts, your Instagram accounts, and see what kind of content you're putting out. See if you're a serious person and see if you've done what you said you've done. You can go online and take a look at Jake and myself. We've bought 2,000 units. We have over $250 million in assets. Our students have closed over 60,000 units. Go check the reviews that we've done. You need to really do a deep background dive. Spend a couple hours because if you're going to give this person $100,000 or a million dollars of your hard-earned money, do your due diligence on the front end. That's really, really important. And as far as the sponsor goes, I would really dive into that sponsor and I would ask him, how transparent are you? Are you going to tell me that when a deal goes south, you're getting on the phone with me or are you going to bury your head in the sand and see what they say? They're all going to say, yeah, of course. Okay. That's what I want. I'd rather have an amazing sponsor and a marginal deal rather than an amazing deal and a marginal sponsor. That's the reality because the amazing sponsor will make up for that deal. They will find a way to get your capital back because ultimately, I think investors want capital preservation. They'd rather not lose money than actually make the money. So if you can tell the investor and give them the confidence that you are going to be the financial steward, that's important. And for you sponsors out there, what I would do is start collecting reviews and start collecting reviews from investors that you've worked with and brokers that you've worked with and people in the industry. So you can start showing your investors, hey, I've got a list of reviews here from people that I've worked with, if this will make you feel a little bit more comfortable. But it's ultimately up to the passive investor to reach, pick up the phone and start talking to other people. When Jay, when people want to want to join the Jake and Gino community, community. We just let them talk to some of our students. Hey, what's the experience? If you aren't finding what, what you want to online, just have a conversation with the people that we've worked with. Absolutely. When somebody invests so much into building their brand and reputation, 
that means something. You know, it took blood, sweat, and tears to build that. When you say it, it's one thing. When other people say it, it's completely different. So that's yes. that's that's great advice for people. Just to summarize a little bit, you know, under these three criteria, some of the takeaways that I got, you know, buying right, number one, understand your financial situation and, and what you can't afford and what you're looking for, whether it's cash flow, appreciation, a little bit of both. Make sure you're picking the right markets. In terms of managing right, if you're a passive investor, you need to look at the people that you're entrusting your money with. Have they done these type of deals before to meet them in person, do due diligence online, see their reputation and their brand. And if we just could touch a little bit on the financing, right? How could people set a little bit of criteria around that? Maybe a framework on how they should view that, you know, when they're speaking with other sponsors and asking them, how are you financing this deal? Great question. I forgot to touch on that. And as far as the manager, right? If I could expand on that for just one, one, you know, one more minute, I would even see the property management company. If you are going with a person who's, who's hiring third party, I would actually go online, vet the third party. I'm not, that's so big on reviews of property management because most people who complain about property management, they're going to use, a, they're going to leave a bad review on that. It's just the reality of it. You, it's very hard to get good reviews of property management. But what I would do is I'd find out what properties that, that they're actually going out there and managing and start calling some of those offices and say, Hey, I'd like to rent a two bedroom and see the processes that they have in place and maybe go online and take a look at some of the pictures that these people are actually, you know, managing. So if you're going to do a deal in Dallas and the property management companies in Dallas, I would get on a plane, fly to Dallas and spend half a day driving around looking at some of these properties. Now, it's not all the property management companies' fault because some owners can be cheap and they don't want to spend money. So we can't blame property management companies for some of the things. But if you see five deals and four of those deals look terrible, it, it's probably the property management company. And and why am, why am I just so harping on this is property management and the third pillar that manage right is where you make your money in real estate. You don't make money when you buy real estate. You make money when you exit real estate. And how do you exit profitably? Whether it's a refi or a sale, it's by executing, by increasing that NOI. And how do you do that? By having proper property management and proper asset management. So it's crucial to get that piece right and make sure that whether you're, you know, your syndication company like Jake and myself, we're vertically integrated. We manage our own properties or going out using third-party property management. It's very, very important. And as far as the finance, right? Right now, it's it's a very interesting you know, time. This is going back to when Jake and I started. We're going back into the buyer's cycle. We're going to a little bit of a recession right now. Banks are starting to pull back. Debt is the circulatory engine of the economy, as we like to say. And it's going to get a little tricky. Go out there and look at community banks. They're, they're challenging right now because they're needing to go out and borrow money to make these loans because their deposits have dwindled. So their rates are a lot higher. We're using credit unions right now. Credit unions, I got a 5.9% rate on a credit union, 25 year AM, two years interest only. Credit unions are great. And what I would say is be wary right now if syndicators are going out there trying to get short-term bridge debt. We have not told our students to do that. It got so crazy at one point that people are buying stabilized deals on bridge debt over the last two years. And you know they bought them at 3%. You know, they're exit, you know, two years later, we're three and a half, four, five. Well, now those rates are at 9%. So that is very, very risky to be able to execute on a deal in 24 months where you've got a rate and you've got to get out in 24 months. And that's where the opportunity is going to be. So if you're going with a syndication company or a syndicator who's using short-term debt, number one, make sure they've executed on the deal. Number two, make sure that their underwriting is conservative. They're not, they're not underwriting for 20% rent growth year over year and that their expenses are only increasing by 2% 
because insurance and taxes are a killer right now. So that exit when you're, you know, we, you go on that, on that short term is very, very challenging. What I would say to people, you want to get that rate risk off the table. We're, we're going into longer term fixed rate financing. That's what we're looking to do, you know, and we have been doing for the past several years. So when you're looking at that finance rate, make sure that they have that debt locked in. We use loan to cost with our, whether it's a community bank or credit union, it's got a five year term. So it doesn't have that push with bridge debt. And then after three or four years, we're able to take that asset, bring it out, and we can either roll it back into community, refi it, sell it, B, which we rarely do, or C, we'll take it to one of the agencies and refi it to them. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I love what you said about just your financing philosophy, because if we look at all the turmoil that's happening now in the real estate market, it's mainly caused because of people taking bridge financing, rates that are going to eventually become floaters. Everybody's thinking that, you know, rates are always going to stay low and they're, they were hoping to refinance into, into fixed financing. But now the rates went up and they can't refi anymore. And they also, a lot of people can't afford their payments. So there's been a lot of turmoil happening in the market. And a lot of people have different opinions on that. I'd love to get your sentiment on it. Do you see this as a time for opportunity? Or do you see this as a warning sign? And if so, how should people protect themselves? I would answer that question, Arnold, by going back into history and going back into time. It's called the market cycle, or in this case, it's the interest rate cycle, when the Fed, which their job is to actually take control of inflation. Inflation is increase in the money supply. Raising prices is the cause of inflation. Let's, let's get that straight. Their job is to keep inflation under control. Well, they've been printing so much money over the last several years. When they thought inflation was transitory, by the grace of God, I have no idea how the hell they even thought that because you're working. There's so much demand. There's not enough supply. And they're saying it's intransitory. They should have raised rates sooner. When the Fed raises rates, all that happens is the economy starts to slow down. Demand for things slow down. Pricing eases. And what they did is they waited too long. In my opinion, they waited because of the, because of the elections in 2022. They waited too long. And when they raised rates, it was a shock to the system. Now rates have gone up so high right now that hopefully we go into a recession. Things stabilize a little bit. Things normalize like they did in 08. That's what basically happened. The recession lasted for probably 10 or 11 months back then. And then what happens is rates have to come back down. So knowing this information, if you're able to underwrite a deal right now at the current interest rates in the next two to three years, they'll probably drop. Rates will have to drop. It's basic market cycles. It's buyer's cycle to the seller cycle. Now we're going back to the buyer's cycle. And what happens is the Fed has to control that inflation by raising rates. And now once you raise the rates, you've killed the economy. It's back to, you know, laying the golden eggs. They go the golden goose. They've got to drop rates. That's what I see happening right now. And listen, this is not a political thing because back in 2019, Trump, you know, was wanted to put on the brakes and say, Hey, rates are going up. We've got to slow rates and drop rates before COVID. And if anybody remembers back in 2019, the beginning, there were, Deals are, that were falling out of uh, contract because rates were going up. They, they should have left rates there, but instead they dropped rates. And then when COVID came, that was just the excuse to continue to have those suppressed rates. And the last thing I'll say, the reason why I'm harping on this is 
When you have rates at basic zero for eight or nine years, what that does, it causes speculation. The cost of capital is so cheap to private equity and to everyone else, they're rushing in to all of these different assets, whether they're crypto, whether they're stocks, whether they're commodities, whether they're real estate, and all that money is cheap. The cost of capital is cheap. There's a demand for these assets. Asset prices go up. As interest rates go up, the demand goes down. It can't be much and prices are reflecting in that. And that's what's going to happen. If people, you know, are patient enough, the next 12 to 24 months, there's going to be some great deals in real estate. They just need to be a little bit patient. Yeah. And you know, a, a lot of people that, that I speak to, they're seeing 15, 20% price discounts just from 12 months ago. Yes. And really the only thing that's changed were the interest rates. So I think you and I share a very similar philosophy. You know, if things can pencil now and make sense now. And you could acquire that property now and wait two to three years and rates go down and now you refi it. Well, you just got a 15, 20% discount from where that market was. And the basic fundamentals are all there, just the supply and demand shortages. So that's great, great perspective. I also wanted to touch on a little bit about your philosophy in terms of value-based decision-making. If you could shed a little bit of light into how that works and you know, maybe even perhaps a real-life scenario where that came into play in your investing career. Yeah, the year is 2005. My accountant said to me, and for all you accountants out there, accountants make terrible investors. Just putting that out there, just my opinion. But anyway, <laughs> my accountant says to me, I know a guy. So when you hear you know a guy, you say to yourself, okay, I had money sitting in the bank. I said, okay, Todd. What are we doing? I got a name guy and got a guy named Mike. He's buying a mobile home park down in Florida. I said, okay. Now remember, 2005, things were, you know, hopping, you know, once again, rates were low and things were just churning and a lot of speculation. So I said, okay. By the way, I named this gentleman Maserati Mike. He had a nice gold Maserati. He was driving around and I invested $172,000 into the deal. Looking back at it, it wasn't so much the deal. It wasn't so much the partnership. It wasn't so much my inability to understand the deal. It was, I think, a combination of all those. And unfortunately, I can blame him all I want. The responsibility lies with me because I chose him as a partner. I chose him as part of that deal. I didn't understand real estate at the time. All I knew is that I heard passive. Wow, I don't have to do anything. I put money with this guy and I can make money. And and from the beginning, that partnership was doomed because our values did not align. He had very little skin in the game. He was a complete buffoon. He didn't understand. And to my credit, I was at the same time too. We basically created a syndication, a security. I was giving him money with the expectation of being passive. That by definition is a security, is a syndication. We didn't create any any documentation. We didn't create any of that. So I take a lot of the responsibility upon myself, but the values weren't there. The alignment wasn't there. I just found him to be very non-responsibility taking. I found him to be very non-transparent, was not a hard worker, did not have a long-term mindset. He was a W-2 worker who was trying to do this on the side. It was just doomed from the start. And that is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I said, okay, now I know what I want. I want a hardworking partner. I want somebody who's transparent. I want somebody who wants to invest in a vehicle long term. I want somebody who wants not even create legacy and generational wealth, but create a business, build a business around what we're doing. And when I met Jake, all those values align. Then we created the core values for our companies. Our core values align. Our mission statements align. Our big, hairy, audacious goals align. That's what I think you need to look for in a partnership. And I think 
one of the things that I really messed on on the first one was the expectations. Jake and I have expectations. We know what we're doing at every part of the week. I had no expectations with my other partner. And to think that, you know, things are going to go smoothly. I, I invested with three, three gentlemen down here in Florida when I moved here five years ago. I messed up. I didn't follow the tenants. The values-based decision-making wasn't there. It was a little shiny object. Hey, I'm going to build a couple of vacation rentals, be passive. And that was just a terrible thing. My values did not align with these guys. They were not what I was looking for in a partnership, but I was allured into it. You know, One of the gentlemen knew the other two, and he thought that I knew them. I thought that he knew them. It just didn't fit. So every time you're looking at a deal or at a partnership or as an employee or at a vendor... I think that values-based decision-making really is critical. If your values don't align with that other party, it's going to be hard long-term to keep that relationship. Yeah, and I see how that really blends in into your three pillars, which is it goes under the section of manage right. Because if you're going to have somebody else managing that property, those are some good questions that people should be asking How do the values align between myself and my sponsor? Are they looking to do two-year deals? five-year deals, seven years. So I really love the way your philosophies integrate. To take that one step further, if you're working with a property management company and you're saying to them, hey, we need to get on a call every week, 15 minutes, I just want to be proactive. I mean, if there's delinquency, if there's CapEx, let's get on weekly. And if the property management company says, oh, no, we don't do it that way. We get on once a month. That's not the fit. That's not the property management company you ought to be working for because you're doing them a favor. You're on weekly. You can catch these problems weekly. They don't build up. That's something that we talk about our cadence of accountability. If a landscaper is like, oh, you know what? I only work on Mondays. I can't come out to your property Wednesday and you need to come out Wednesdays. That's probably not a good fit. So thinking about these things long term, I think will really help your business expand. Absolutely. Right. Any partnership, whether it's your marriage, your best friend, your business, yes, right. You have to have the same vision. Otherwise, you're going to be in constant friction. Excellent. Today, we discussed the three pillars of real estate investing, which is buying right, managing right and financing right. And we also discussed the importance of understanding your criteria under those buckets, understanding what buying right means to you, understanding what managing right means and how to vet people. And that's when we segued a little bit into value-based decision-making and making sure your values are aligned with the people that you do business with. We touched a little bit about the market and financing and what's going on and a little bit about our perspective as to how we see it going. But lastly, I also I want to ask you about a little post that I came across, and I think a lot of people can benefit. I know your wife, Julia, discusses how to make marriage work <laughs> while investing together. I'd love to hear your side of it. What advice can you give people that also invest alongside their significant others? And, you know, how do you walk that fine line between business and home life? I'm a competitive person, but when it comes to my marriage with my wife, there's no I in team. I I do not compete with her. I uplift her and she uplifts me. We don't compete on that level. We have a podcast. It's the Julian Gino show. And and we talk about spousal relationships. We talk about communication. And I don't want to have a separate bank account. Whatever I'm making, it's all for her and all for the family. I think that's the way I'm looking at it. We're really a team trying to work together. And if she looks great, I look great. And if I look great, she looks great. And I'm always trying to to uphold that. And she really could care less about real estate. She doesn't know what a cap rate is. She doesn't know what a cash on cash return is. But she had the confidence in me when I started to say, Gino, I have the confidence in you. If you want to leave the restaurant, you do what you got to do. Coincidentally, at the same time, 
she gave me that gift. I couldn't squander it. I worked my ass off for years. And I said to her, I'm going to commit to what I'm doing here. I'm going to try to be the best that I can because I'm taking my family's future and I'm putting it into my hands and I need to be really good at what I'm doing. So she had confidence in me and I couldn't squander that. And for her, I mean, she's just a supremely talented person. I mean, we have six kids. She homeschools the kids. She's nothing that she cannot do. And it's just an amazing thing. So when I have somebody who's working hard, like my partner, Jake, or like my wife, Julia, I have to reciprocate. I can't make excuses. That's why you really need to see who your peer group is, who you're surrounding yourself with. And if you can raise the level of your peer group, that's only going to naturally raise you. Because my wife could have said to me, yeah, you know what, you do what you want. And I don't really care. But we always communicated. She didn't know what financial freedom meant because she never had to worry about money. I finally said to her one day, wouldn't it be nice if we can come down to Florida? I could live on the beach. I could donate more money. I don't have to worry about paying for braces. I didn't have to worry about buying a car and go, wow, you know, we have six kids. There's always bills coming up. I didn't want to worry about the bills. That's what my goal was. So sit down with your significant other and try to map out why you're doing this. I wasn't making money to to become flashy. I was just making money to become more comfortable, to have more options. And to ultimately, if I want to start Jake and Gino, I can, because I don't have to, you know, do the nine to five grind. I can start building the brand and I can start doing other things that don't generate money day one. They may generate money year three, but I have to have that conversation with her and I have to make her understand what that looks like. So the communication is so paramount and just listening to your spouse. I think the last thing I would say is it's very hard to take advice or to take criticism from your spouse because it's more of an ego thing. And I've had, I've had problems with this because she'll tell me, hey, you shouldn't have said that or hey, you should do this on camera or hey, should we spend the money there? Just listen to your spouse because I think they have their best interests. And sometimes, you know, you're taking it a different way than what they're trying to say. So just be cognizant of that as well. Yeah. As I was hearing you talk, the the one thing that kept ringing in my head was Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people. If it's not a win-win, it's a lose-lose. And it, it seems like that's that's a big philosophy that you have in terms of alignment and understanding your core purpose and whys. I found this to be very insightful. Gino, I think, delivered amazing value to our listeners and to myself. To wrap up the show for today, I'd like to ask you a couple of closing questions. Sure. Is there one mistake that you've made in your investing career that others can learn from and possibly avoid by learning from you? I've made so many mistakes. I I think the one mistake that I made when I look back is rushing and buying the wrong deal. I I said it earlier and I glossed over it. No deal is better than a bad deal. Don't rush. The last couple of years, it's been very challenging to find deals. We could have been doing other things. We could have started a podcast. We could have written a book. We could have talked to investors. So it's not only about finding that deal. If there's deals out there that don't fit your criteria, don't force the deal. And what is one piece of advice that you could give people where they can leave today and take an actionable insight? What I would do is look around and see who you're hanging around with. I mean, you know what Jim Rome says. I think that's actionable. Absolutely. And and not even who you're hanging around with. What are you listening to? Are you listening to the news? Are you listening to, you know, just watching sports? Are you on Netflix a little too much? Are you scrolling Instagram? Or are you on there underwriting deals and, and personal development? That's really, really, take stock 
of where you're focusing a lot of your time on. Because as you said, you're a Tony Robbins fan. Tony says, just show me where you're spending your time and I'll tell you what you're going to aspire to. So if you're on all those things that don't benefit you, but are benefiting others, I would start focusing on what's going to benefit you and what's going to move the needle for your life. You know, that's great advice. Thanks again. Thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. And also follow and subscribe. One last thing. If you'd like to use us as a resource for anything real estate related, whether it's a second opinion on an opportunity you're analyzing or looking to explore new opportunities, we're here to help. Whether you do business with us or not, our company philosophy is to deliver as much value as possible and help people make better financial decisions. Book a strategy call with us today by visiting investav.com forward slash contact. We will discuss your investing goals, our investment opportunities, and share valuable insights as to what we see in the market today. Quick disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action.